Hello, my conservation friends. It is your host, PB Crottinger, here bringing you episode two of our ocean series. Last episode, we chatted with Jennifer Keck of the Roatan Institute for Marine Sciences about the birth of the Roatan Marine Park and why the reefs are so important to the local economy and way of life. This week, I had the pleasure of talking with Jennifer Papianopoulos. My name is Jennifer Papianopoulos, and I am one of the uh, Rotan Marine Park Coral Restoration Instructors here in Rotan, Honduras. About the coral nursery in RMP and the threats that corals face. But before we dive in, I want to say a few words about Jen. It is very rare you meet an individual who says, I have had enough, and actively seeks out what gives their life meaning and purpose. Jen is one of those people, and her story is truly inspiring. When Martin Luther King said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. He was talking about people like Jen. I hope her story encourages and inspires you that yes, you, yes, you, you too can make a difference. All right, let's dive in. What is your favorite animal? Well, I love obviously all of the animals under the sea. But if I had to pick my all-time favorite animal, it is probably a seagull, which I feel like is not most people's favorite animal. You get a lot of, they get a lot of hate, but I feel like I connect with them. We both love the ocean. We both love the beach. We like stealing food from our friends. I just feel like me and the seagulls, we really understand each other. I think seagulls are my favorite animal. That is my favorite answer anyone has ever given me. (laughs) Oh, this is amazing. If you drink coffee, what is your favorite coffee? Black, just black coffee, strong, dark roast, a lot of it. Very good. You're in the right area of the world for that too. Tell us your story. How did you find yourself in Rotan as a scuba instructor and coral restoration expert? (sighs) Well, that is a long journey. I do not have any kind of background in biology. I am not a scientist. Um, One of my childhood dreams was to be a marine biologist, but I did nothing with that dream. I went to school for business, for marketing, and I worked in advertising in New York for 12 years. Um, Things I loved about it, but I knew it wasn't the life for me. I fell in love with scuba diving when I was about 22 years old. I started using all of my very precious vacation days to go on holidays where I could go diving all over the world. And I always had this dream that I wanted to be a dive instructor, but I never thought I would actually bite the bullet and quit my job. But I finally, I guess, had had enough. And I, in 2019, resigned from my job and moved here in December of 2019 I worked remotely for my job for a few months. My last official day of work was March 1st, 2020, when I decided to start my my training. And then 2020 happened, and obviously tourism disappeared. So I still was able to complete all of my training over that year, but there wasn't a lot of a lot of people to be teaching how to scuba dive, right? We didn't have anybody coming to the island for a long time. And I was very lucky. I I I lucked out a lot because my mentor for my dive master program happened to be the only coral restoration instructor that was left on the island. The program was started the year prior and a lot of people had been trained. The idea for the program initially was for it to be kind of a self-sustaining program. All of the instructors at different dive shops were trained in how the program worked and how to teach it. 
And then COVID happened and everybody left. So the only person left on the island was a lovely woman named Suzanne, who was my mentor for my dive master program. And she loved working in the nursery and it needed a lot of upkeep. There wasn't a lot of people at the Marine Park either actually working for the Marine Park that were heavily involved in the program at the time. So she kind of kept it running and trained me. And then when things started opening up again, people started coming back to the island. I was, you know, one of the most involved people. So they asked if I didn't mind helping out, working kind of freelance for the Marine Park, getting the program back up to speed, basically updating course materials. I wrote a training program for training new instructors and I just fell in love with it. And I just kind of self-taught, read a lot of articles. I had friends that worked at universities getting, you know, logging in and finding articles on coral diseases to send to me so I could know what I was talking about a little bit. So that's kind of it. I I, I just started from no, from scratch completely. I knew nothing really about biology. I hadn't taken biology since high school. Now it's it's one of my favorite things to talk about. I love that your childhood dream came true after all. And like I was telling you before this episode began, I want to inspire everyone to be everyday conservationists. And I think that your story embodies that idea of if you truly love something, you're going to find a way, even if you don't have the quote unquote, typical education background. And here you are. Yeah, I completely agree. I, it was such an amazing feeling to suddenly realize that I was involved with such an amazing program and like doing this thing that meant so much to me. And, and even though I had no background in science, I was always like the person in the office yelling at everyone for their plastic forks at lunch and insisting on recycling and, and doing little things in my own life. I was, I was changing the way that I ate. I was changing kind of like focusing a lot on what my food sources were and the way that my food was being uh, grown and raised and I kind of made all these little changes over the years that made it a really obvious choice for me to get involved in the program when I got here, but I had no idea how much I was going to love it until I got got started. What exactly is a coral and what are the corals you find here in Roatan and the Mesoamerican Reef? Great question. A lot of people, unless they're, you know, avid scuba divers or involved in, in this work, don't really understand exactly what corals are. They look a lot of them, the hard corals look like rocks. A lot of soft corals look like plants, but they're actually animals. They're, they're living beings. They are comprised of tiny, tiny little polyps, which the individual polyps are actual individual animals. They have a digestive system. They have mouths and tentacles that can feed from the water. They build these limestone structures that they kind of, that helps build that reef. But they're all these teeny little individual animals that all work together. They're identical clones of each other to form a coral colony. And that's what we look at when we see like a stag form coral. We're looking at actually a colony of all these tiny little individual animal polyps. And then inside those polyps live a symbiotic algae. They're called zooxanthellae. Very fun word to say. Um, they're tiny little algaes that give the corals their color. So the coral tissue itself is actually transparent. And these little algaes live inside and they photosynthesize sunlight and create nutrients that they share with the corals that they're living inside of. So it's a symbiotic relationship between the two of them, and neither can really survive without the other. So they're technically an animal, but you can kind of look at the coral colony as both an animal and a plant because they really need each other to survive. 
So we have a very rich ecosystem of corals here in Rotan. We actually have one of the healthiest stretches of reef within the Mesoamerican reef system. So we have lots of different stony corals like boulder corals and pillar corals, and maize corals, brain corals. And then we have, of course, our acropora corals, which is what we're focusing on in this program. So you have your elkhorns and your staghorns, and then the fused hybrid of the two, which is my favorite. And then we also have lots of different varieties of soft corals as well. So we're really lucky to have a really rich ecosystem. Of course, coral reefs are not doing well all over the world. The Mesoamerican reef system is the second largest uh, coral reef system in the world. It is obviously struggling in a lot of the ways that all of our coral reefs are, but we're lucky that we are kind of, I would say, holding on pretty well, given our, the conditions uh, the reefs are facing. We still have a, you know, a fairly, fairly healthy ecosystem. So in the parts of the Mesoamerican reef that aren't doing so hot, why are they in such bad shape? And why do we we, the proverbial we, need a full coral restoration plan? So that is a big question. There is, there are a lot of things that are affecting the reefs. It is a big question. Very big. So there's a lot of things going on. There is natural things that have happened. I'm going to say natural because we don't know the causes of it. So there have been a number of very serious coral diseases that have happened over the years. With the program that we're focusing on amongst the acropora corals, there is a disease called white band disease that actually started in the 1970s and really started decimating the populations all across the Mesoamerican reef system. We've had other diseases since then, of course, most recently here in Central America, we've had the stony coral tissue loss disease, which affects does not uh, affect our acropora corals, luckily, but does affect all of those stony corals we were talking about. So our pillars our brain corals, our boulder corals, our maize corals. And these diseases come through and they're, they're very deadly to the corals. We don't really know where the diseases come from, but we know that the conditions that the corals are in, their immune systems are not um, operating at full capacity. So when these diseases come through, they're really being affected greatly by it. And again, I'm not a marine biologist, so I can't speak to kind of the mechanism of disease as well as a marine biologist would be able to. But we have had these diseases come through starting, you know, 50 years ago and really affecting the population. Oh, hey, it's me. I know that podcasts make it really difficult to visualize what's going on with the corals. So to make it easier for you, I have linked the Florida Museum's coral disease webpage in the show notes. It has pictures and descriptions of the types of diseases these corals are facing. And I highly recommend you check it out just to give yourself an idea of what's going on. We've had a very serious die-off in the 1980s of sea urchins. So long-spine sea urchins, we call them diademas, started dying off around the Panama Canal in 1983. Whatever was killing them, which again, we don't know what it was, spread through from the Panama Canal north to Florida and as south as Argentina, and it decimated that population. That's super important because our long-spine sea urchins act like little vacuum cleaners. All over the reef at night, they come out and they eat up all of that macroalgae that's growing on the reef, which, if you don't know, is very important to get rid of because that macroalgae is going to block all of that sunlight from being able to get to our corals and the little algaes that live inside of them that are photosynthesizing. So little algae in the coral, super good. Fluffy algae on the coral, super bad. So those uh, sea urchins were eating up all of that algae and they all died. 
they all disappeared. And that was it had a major effect on the coral reefs. There's also just major problems with overfishing. Fish stocks all over the world are collapsing. We are at danger of almost all. I think the last number I saw was 80, 83% of fish stocks in the world are overfished. And what happens is when we overfish a bigger fish, they're not eating the smaller fish and they're not eating other smaller organisms on the reef that are natural predators of coral. So in a healthy, well-operating ecosystem, you're going to have things like bearded fireworms that are eating some coral and you're going to have stubby coral uh, snails that are eating some coral. You're going to have little damselfish that are building their little algae farms on the coral. And that is natural and that is okay. And it the corals can recover from these kind of small attacks, if you will. Um, but when we are eating all of the groupers and all of the snappers and all of the lobsters that eat these things that eat coral, you're getting these top-down ecological shifts. When we get rid of all the predators, these other organisms are on the reef in a, overabundance and they're eating too much of the coral. They're building too many little algae farms on the coral and destroying too much of it. And the corals can't, can't withstand it. There are a few things that are funnier than seeing your dive master flip the bird to an angry little fish who is trying to defend its monocropped algae culture. If you want to learn more about why damselfish can be detrimental to the reef when not controlled by larger predators, I have included a link in the show notes about damselfish farms and their weird behaviors. So that's, that's a big factor as well. Overfishing is having a very big impact on the reefs. And then on top of that, of course, we have the increased acidification that's caused by too much CO2 being dumped into the oceans. So since the Industrial Revolution, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere uh, has obviously increased dramatically. The oceans are absorbing, I think, 30% of that, uh, that CO2 that we're dumping into the atmosphere. Okay, so just how much carbon are we talking here? Well, the World Economic Forum has answers. According to ice core samples that have been dated roughly between 1750 to 1800, pre-industrial atmospheric carbon levels hung around 278 parts per million. During some days of February through March of 2021, the atmospheric carbon levels were roughly 417 parts per million. And if that wasn't encouraging enough, the AP News just put out an article on March 1st, 2023, titled Carbon Emissions Have Reached a Record High. So we're on a fantastic path here, aren't we? So it's, you know, tons and tons a day of CO2 being dumped in. And what that's doing is it is affecting the coral's ability to grow. They need these carbonate ions that are in the ocean in order to build the reef structures that they are living on that is part of their you know structure and without getting too into the kind of science nitty-gritty of it as the co2 is being dumped into the ocean it's gobbling up if you will all of these available carbonate ions and they're just not available anymore for the corals ocean acidification is a huge problem and you're going to hear a lot about it throughout multiple episodes in a future episode i sat down with dr murray roberts a cold water coral specialist and he goes into a little bit more depth about it but for the sake of this episode, I think it's really important to give you guys a primer on what it is and why it's so important. So I'm going to read you guys a quick little blurb from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. As you just heard, carbon emissions are at record highs. So keep that in mind. 
For more than 200 years or since the Industrial Revolution, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere has increased due to burning fossil fuels and land use change. The ocean absorbs about 30% of the CO2 that is released in the atmosphere, and as levels of CO2 increase, so do the levels in the ocean. When CO2 is absorbed by seawater, a series of chemical reactions occur, resulting in the increase of hydrogen ions. This increase causes the seawater to become more acidic and causes carbonate ions to be relatively less abundant. Carbonate ions are an important building block of structures such as seashells and coral skeletons. Decreases in carbonate ions can make building and maintaining shells and other calcium carbonate structures difficult for calcifying organisms such as oysters, clams, sea urchins, shallow water corals, deep sea corals, and calcareous plankton. These changes in ocean chemistry can affect the behavior of non-calcifying organisms as well. Certain fish's ability to detect predators is decreased in more acidic waters. When these organisms are at risk, the entire food web may also be at risk. Thank you, Noah, for that fantastic little blurb. If you want to learn more about ocean acidification, you guessed it, there will be links in my show notes. And stay tuned for future episodes where, again, that becomes a very common topic. As the uh, CO2 is being absorbed into the ocean, it's also making the ocean more acidic. And that increased acidity affects that relationship between the zooxanthellae and the coral polyps. So it affects the zooxanthellae's ability to generate nutrients to photosynthesize. And when those zooxanthellae are not generating nutrients, the corals spit them out. They say, let me try other ones, you know, but they're all, they're all in the same situation. So it affects that relationship between the two of them. And without those zooxanthellae, this is where we start seeing coral bleaching. When you see bleaching of a coral reef, what you're actually seeing, the corals themselves, nothing is changing. You're seeing those little zooxanthellae leave. So the algae inside is what's giving them the color. As that zooxanthellae leaves, as they are uh, dispelled by the corals, you're starting to see them paling and paling, and eventually they look bone white if they have no zooxanthellae left. So obviously anything that is affecting those that relationship, which can be more acidic water, also, the water temperature rising. We're having much warmer water year after year. Scientists, again, I'm not one, predict that with an increased uh, water temperature of 1.5 degrees, we will lose 70 to 90% of coral reefs because of this, this interruption to that relationship between the corals and their zooxanthellae. Um, and that with a 2 degrees Celsius increase, we will lose 99% or greater than 99% of coral reefs. As you know, we're at one degree now. So we are we are really at risk of losing them. So that's a lot. There's a whole lot of things going on. Yeah, that is a lot. And so the coral nursery, the coral restoration plan is basically like a extinction prevention plan right now in Roatan then. Yes, you can look at it that way. So we've lost uh, more than 97% of the species we're currently working with from their original levels. So... So right now, you know, you don't see a ton of natural staghorn and natural elkhorn on the reefs anymore. They serve a very important purpose on the reefs. So we want to make sure that we're helping maintain them. But this type of coral restoration that we're doing right now, where it's asexual reproduction, it's fragmentation, where we're putting clones kind of of what we already have out on the reef, is not a long-term solution. What we need is for these corals to be sexually reproducing so that they're creating new genotypes, you know, new little coral babies with genetics that hopefully are more resistant to the conditions they're being born in. So more resistant to warmer waters, more resistant to more acidic water. 
Um, that's what we need for the future for these guys to survive. So right now we're just trying to get as many of them out there to give them a chance. I like to think of it like we're the match or we're the lighter and then they need to actually uh, go off and create new babies. How many nurseries are in the RMP and how many are you responsible for? Sure. So the Roatan Marine Park currently has one nursery in this program where we are growing acropora corals. We have just installed some table structures, which are going to hopefully work a little better for our elkhorn. So still within that acropora program. There are three other nurseries on the island, which the marine park does not manage. One of them is that RIMS nursery. I know you spoke to Jennifer Keck about that one. There is another that is run by an organization called BICA. And then there is another that is run up in Turquoise Bay out of uh, Turquoise Bay Resort and Subway Water Sports have a program that they run up there. We all work very closely together, but the Roatan Marine Parks Nursery, we have one kind of major nursery. We have 40 coral trees at a dive site called Sequesti here in uh, kind of between West End and West Bay. So most people are familiar with these white PVC trees used in coral nurseries and with their little coral pieces hanging off the branches like Christmas tree ornaments. But why use PVC trees instead of just sprinkling little coral fragments all over the reef? Is there a strategy for that? There is. Um, So what's really great, and I like to call it magic. I know it's science, but the way that acropora corals reproduce naturally they can do their, you know, sexual reproduction where they're spawning and creating new little coral babies that settle and become new colonies. But they also have this natural ability to asexually reproduce where if a kind of branch of the coral breaks off, if a little piece breaks off of the coral, which can happen naturally from kind of storm surges or sea turtles or bad divers, if a branch breaks off of the coral, that little piece of that coral colony knows that it's no longer attached to its original colony and that it has fallen uh, off. And it now starts acting like a baby coral. So what it's going to do is it's going to, hopefully if it lands in a hospitable place, it's going to root down into the reef, select to the substrate, and it's going to start growing at a faster rate. It's going to say, okay, I'm a baby. And it's going to start growing a little bit faster. So because this is naturally happened, we can go collect these fragments and instead of putting them straight back on the reef, we cut them up into smaller pieces. And now we have a bunch of small pieces that know that their babies are going to grow faster. So the corals are going to grow faster in the nursery because they, again, magically know that they're babies and they need to grow faster. So all of these little pieces that we are uh, hanging in the nursery are growing at a faster rate naturally than they would if we just planted kind of the whole big piece back on. But there's a couple of other factors. They're away from most predators in the nursery. They also are getting a lot more sunlight. So when we hang them in these trees, they're obviously quite close to the surface. We hang them at a, you know about the same depth as they came from. We're not going to hang them at a much deeper or much shallower depth than where they naturally were. But they have the ability to get all of this sunlight from the surface. And we typically plant these or install these nurseries over a white sandy bottom. So they're also getting that reflection of the sunlight back up from the bottom. So they get all this extra sunlight. And of course, sunlight is really, really good for those zooxanthellae to be producing nutrients for the corals. They also are a little bit mobile. So when we have a bunch of storm surge, 
they're not getting kind of ripped off the reef. They're able to move and sway. The trees are kind of attached with a float on the surface and then a rope on the bottom that is screwed into the uh, substrate. So if we have a really bad storm coming where we know we're gonna have really bad waves on the surface, we can pull those corals down a little bit lower to protect them. If we have a really, really hot couple of weeks in the summer where that surface temperature is increasing, if we start seeing 30, 31 degrees Celsius water, that's typically gonna be warmest closest to the surface, we can pull those corals down so that they're not in that super warm water on the surface. But then when the water cools off a little, we can move them back up so they're getting more sunlight without the warmer water on the surface. So there's a lot of factors that just make the corals grow a lot quicker in the nursery. Just to clarify, when you're getting these fragments, is it half and half of like finding them in the wild and then the other half you're fracturing pieces from your coral nurseries just to kind of make more? Where are you getting your fragments? Great question. So different programs work differently. What we prioritize in this program is what we call fragments of opportunity. So if after a storm, we see that a big piece of a staghorn has broken off, that's a really good opportunity for us to grab that. If it hasn't landed somewhere where it's going to grow naturally and it's just hanging out in the sand, or if it has landed on top of another living coral, we can take that kind of maybe like small chandelier size fragment that is broken off and we can go bring that to the nursery to one of our empty trees and we can cut it up into little pieces. Imagine pieces about the size of your finger, little bits. And we hang all of those individual pieces in one coral tree. Each of the trees in the nursery is genetically different from the ones around it, but within that tree, they are genetic, genetic clones of each other. So all the little fragments in one tree are genetic clones of each other. Each tree is its own genotype. So we find this piece, we break it up, and maybe we get 20 pieces out of it. Then from those 20 pieces, as they grow, we'll cut them again until we have a full tree. Our trees are anywhere from 60 to 80 fragments in a tree. Then once we have a full tree, we let them grow and grow and grow. And, a, and about nine months later, they're big enough that we can start cutting pieces off of those fragments. And then we cut pieces off of those fragments and that's what we go and glue them. Got it. Okay. So two questions from that. One, I've read somewhere that corals like to engage in coral warfare. They don't like genetically different corals from them unless they're breeding. So when you're out doing your outplant, are you planting like the same colony in a, in a spot? Yes. It's very important that we're keeping kind of the genetic diversity in the nursery so that we know what we're outplanting for exactly that reason. When we're outplanting, we take 10 fragments specific to Acropora. We take uh, to Acropora cervicornis or staghorns. We take 10 fragments of that specific genotype and we plant them quite close to each other in about a pool of hoop sized area on the reef so that as they grow, they actually find each other and fuse together and create this nice big coral colony. When we're doing that, we make sure that we're not planting them too close to a genetically different colony because that's exactly what would happen. As they grew up, if they start butting into each other, they're going, one of them is gonna win, okay? So we want them all to win. So we're gonna keep them nice and uh, dispersed. Everything that is planted together the same genotype so that as they grow up, they have plenty of space to grow and then hopefully start spawning and creating new coral babies. Later. You kind of touched on this just a little bit, 
but does the nursery itself face any unique threats? So they're out in the ocean. So warming oceans and ocean acidity affects them just as much as it's affecting everything Mm -hmm. else, of course. They are also, for the most part, the corals are protected from predators. The pesky uh, bearded fireworms have found their way into our nursery. So they're the, the one kind of predator that we're dealing with in the nursery sometimes. But then also things like big storms, of course, we need to be very careful. We need to make sure that the floats uh, are still in place after a storm and they're not just like falling down into the sand. And then things like runoff from the from the island. We have a lot of deforestation on the island. A lot of the original mangrove forests are no longer uh, present. And those mangrove forests kind of act as a filtration system as we get uh, rain and runoff coming from the island. Those mangrove forests naturally filter that water that's coming out to over the kind of that shallow inner lagoon reef where we have our coral nurseries. Without those mangrove forests, a lot of that runoff is now just ending up both on our reefs and then also, of course, because our uh, nursery is right next to our reefs, over the nursery as well. So uh, runoff from the island can also be a problem we need to deal with sometimes. After these little corals have had plenty of time in the nursery, as a dive master, it is your job to find a suitable outplant spot. How do you personally choose the right spot? And then also, how do you get the baby corals to stick? Great question. So we have a few dive sites where we are focusing for now on outplanting our corals. Keeping them in one general area is a good idea for a couple of reasons, but primarily it allows us to monitor them a little bit easier. It also allows them to be growing up close enough that hopefully when they spawn, they'll find each other in the water column, all the kind of gammies that spawn from the corals. So we have three or four dive sites that are quite close to each other that we are focusing our outplanting efforts in. But then once we get to that dive site and it's time to find an actual just spot to start gluing, we uh, look for a couple of things. I want to be within the same depth range as the parent colony. So we keep track when we are collecting those fragments of opportunity off of the reef. We pay attention to what depth those corals were already living at because chances are they're going to survive best again at that depth. So we're always planting within that range for the corals we're using. That's usually between about five meters and nine meters of depth. So somewhere in that range is usually where we're going to be. I'm looking for an area of substrate that does not have anything currently living on it. I don't want to have a big, beautiful sea fan and plant a bunch of staghorn around it that's going to grow up and take over the space that that other coral was already living. So I'm looking for an area without living corals and sponges, which... Sadly, every coral reef has plenty of spots of that available now. And also looking for a place where I don't have a ton of predators. So if a lot of damselfish are already making their home there, they're probably just going to go build algae farms right on top of my corals right after I plant them. And I'm looking for a place that doesn't have a lot of this fluffy macro algae. It's hard sometimes to find a place that has no algae on the reef that doesn't have living things there. But if I have a whole bunch of this big fluffy macro algae growing that I'm going to need to remove, in order to plant there, chances are that algae is just going to grow right back and take over my corals before they have a chance to grow. So those are all things that I'm looking for. And if I find all of that stuff in a hula hoop sized area, then we're in business. The way that we glue them onto the reef is just actually with like a standard two-part epoxy. So it's that kind of epoxy where you have a part A and a part B, you mix them together, and then it starts this hardening process. 
So on land, that's going to start drying really within about an hour. Underwater, it takes about 24 hours. So we don't mix that until we're already in the water. So once I get in, I'm looking for my spot to plant. I'm mixing part A and part B together so I get a nice even epoxy. And then I just take little tiny balls of epoxy and I take a piece of coral when I take, get three points of contact. I rough up the substrate a little bit. It's a little bit weird using a hammer underwater to kind of bang on the substrate, but I'm not hurting anything living when I do it. So I'm just banging on the reef, scraping until I have three little points of contact. I attach my little pieces of epoxy and then just press the coral down into it. And hopefully, if I do a good job, that coral is able to stay put for the kind of 24 hours it takes for that epoxy to harden underwater. And then once the epoxy is hardened, they're actually quite well glued down. And then what that coral is going to do is it's going to start growing new polyps. And quite quickly, it actually starts overtaking the epoxy and growing over the epoxy, finding that actual substrate and growing down into the substrate. Awesome. Sweet. Okay. And then final question to wrap it all together. If you could pick one story of being a dive master or being in the coral business, but whether it be a successful story, a cool story, a heartbreaking story, what is your personal story that you want to share about the ocean that you use to help communicate this idea of stewardship? The first thing that comes to mind is actually a really heartbreaking situation. So um, I touched briefly earlier on stony coral tissue loss disease. It is a coral disease that we knew was coming. It had been working its way from Florida down through the Caribbean. We knew it would eventually get to Rotan. And in September of 2020, we started getting the first reports of divers seeing the disease, what we thought to be the disease. So the Marine Park went out and checked it out and said, okay, it's here, it's happening. The good news is that there is a treatment for this disease. So there is a uh, marine epoxy that was developed by a chemist specifically for this purpose that we mix with amoxicillin, actually like the same antibiotics that humans use, and we can treat the lesions on the corals. So it's very, you know, it's, it's a miracle that it works, but the disease moves very, very fast. So when we started getting the reports that the disease was here, we had to wait until we got the permits. Of course, we need permits for everything that we do in the ocean. We had to wait to get the permits. And then so once those permits came through, I was part of the team that was helping the Marine Park go out and treat the corals. So it kind of was exciting when we first we were, go we were going, we we're like, yes, we're going to go treat the corals. It was a kind of an exciting day when we were starting the day. And then you know, we learned how to do it with the, these kind of big plastic syringes. You push this epoxy out and kind of press it into the, the lesions, around the lesions to stop the spread. And I didn't really expect how heartbreaking it was going to see be to actually see the, the lesions on the corals and how diseased they were already going to be. It just spread so quickly. And I just got really overwhelmed. It's the only time I've cried into my scuba mask. It was It was actual tears just looking at these beautiful pillar corals and these huge, beautiful brain corals that had been around for so long that we would, you know, we see them on every dive and suddenly they're just so sick. And we knew what was coming because we knew what had happened in other places. And we knew that no matter how much work we did, we were going to lose most of them. So seeing that for the first time, the, the actual stony coral tissue loss disease when it showed up here in Rotan was quite heartbreaking. It was really, really 
awful to see. I usually don't end my episodes on a downer, but this time I really felt like the point needed to be driven home. Most of you may only see the ocean a handful of times in your life, and even fewer may see the Mesoamerican Reef. Our biggest losses of diversity are unseen, and only those like Jen who have dedicated their lives to protecting these rich, diverse, and important ecospheres can speak to their pain. And so I won't end this episode on a happy note, because what is happening to the reefs is real, and it isn't happy. But I will leave you with hope, and hope can exist in deep sadness. You can get involved. You can make a difference. You can be an everyday conservationist. You can support efforts that exist to bolster the reef and protect the vast biodiversity that lives within. You can support the Rotan Marine Park by following them on Instagram and donating to them directly. I'll have a link in my show notes to their website. You can support the Coral Restoration Foundation. You can fight for legislation that protects our future. You can even visit an aquarium just to learn more. Even something as basic as sharing one fact that you learned from this episode can cascade into a wave of change. Hopefully, after these last two episodes, you have a better understanding why the Wild Broods Art Department is donating 100% of all profits directly to the Rotan Marine Park's restoration efforts. Or, if you want a way to get truly personally involved, next week I discuss scuba diving with the owner of Sweetwater Scuba, Kenny Dial. I haven't laughed that hard in recording an episode in a very long time. You really don't want to miss this one, especially if you're even kind of curious about scuba diving. A special thank you to Roatan Divers for their class and their time and their willingness to work with me as I schedule this podcast. Once you get scuba certified, who knows? Maybe you can visit them and go on your own coral restoration dive. Once again, 100% of all of Wild Brood's art division profits are going directly to the Roatan Marine Park. As of recording this episode, so far we have raised $1,963 that has been sent directly to their coral restoration efforts. So thank you so much, so, so much for your support. All right, have a fantastic week and I will see you next time.